Good to see you. And then I knew we were missing someone. And then Abdullah. And then Abdullah, we need to see. All right. Osama, can you hear? Alhamdulillah. We'll begin with a little bit of dhikr like we did last time, but we'll make it a little bit shorter this time. Is that Noor A? How are you? MashaAllah. So we'll start with a little bit of dhikr. Um, it'll be shorter than last time, but with some of the major components still the same. So we'll start with Hasbunallah when I'm and then we'll go to Astaghfirullah and then we'll go to La ilaha illallah and then we'll go to Allahumma salli ala sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sallam. That looks painful, son. You guys can grab chairs if you want, or anything, whatever you want, do whatever you want. It's your school. Uh, okay, so Bismillah. And I'll read Fatiha first. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen, ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, maliki yawmateen, iyaaka na'budu wa iyaaka nista'in, ihmina siratu al-mustaqeen, siratu al-lazina an'amta alayhim ghayru al-maktubi alayhim Remember part of when we make a dhikr, whatever it is that's in your heart, whatever it is that's heavy on your mind or your heart or whatever, try to dump it into the dhikr, so to speak. Estou 
Bismillah. So he says, trees came. This is now chapter five. Chapter five is on the miracles of the Prophet Amira, can you hear it okay? Chapter five is on the miracles of the Prophet And the chapter begins by saying, trees came prostrating to him when he called, walking towards him on trunks without feet, as though they had inscribed lines of splendid calligraphy with their branches along the path. Okay, so now this whole section is going to get into the miracles of the Prophet um, Sometimes, and I mean, we kind of got into this topic last week, that sometimes for modern Muslims, there's a little bit of a hesitation around the idea of miracles. To the extent that in the 20th century, there were like a lot of back and forth between scholars and people of knowledge and so on and so forth about the miracles. There were even people who wrote biographies of the prophets and Allah them where they took all the miracles out. And they said like, we don't, you know, these miracles, they go against reason, they go against this, they go against that. And this is the reason why we're so backwards. We have to become modernized. We need to be more modern, which is one of the most hard to understand statements, <laughs> you know? People say we need to be more modern. They're like, so what do you mean exactly? What does that look like to you? Um, so in, in, first and foremost, as a matter of aqidah actually, not even as a matter of fiqh or something else, but as a matter of aqidah, we believe in the miracles of the prophets. I mean, it's in the Quran, so it's hard to, in general, miracles are in the Quran. And, you know, what happened with the throne of the queen of uh, Sheba and many other incidents in the Quran. And from the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, this is kind of widely known that there were miraculous things that happened. So this is point number one. Point number two is from the miracles of the Prophet ﷺ, they're called in Arabic mujizat. There are miracles that the um, that the that the people after the Prophet had as well, and those are called those are called karamat, and this is also an issue upon which you know really there's not a whole lot of difference of opinion. And uh, Imam Tahawi in the Aqidah Tahawiyya. He mentions that, and we believe in the miracles of the awliya. This is not like a matter of dispute. It's kind of funny because it became like only the Sufis, those, those ever dangerous in the closet, boogeyman Sufis are the only ones that ever talk about the miracles. It's like, actually, this is like everyone, every Sunni agrees on Aqidah Tahawiyah, and it's right there in Aqidah Tahawiyah. It's not like this is not an issue of uh, some sort of weirdo stuff. It's an issue of actually and of sunnah. Thank you. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, so that's first thing. Second thing is, how do we understand them even rationally? And for anyone who attends Stats for Ads classes, you've heard him break this down many, many times now, but it is, it is an extremely important thing to think about. So um, 
we have in general, you have to ask the question, how do you get knowledge? How do you get knowledge, right? And the most basic way to think about this is as Muslims is we believe that we get knowledge from three sources. Um, those three sources are uh, true intellect and a true report and uh, what is it? And Khabar al-Sadiq and this one and Tajriba uh, Adam. So you have three. You have pure intellect and you have revelation essentially and you have experience, experiential knowledge. Science basically falls into the experiential knowledge side. You see something and then you see if it's, and then you test it to see if it's going to repeat itself. And if it repeats itself, then you test it to see if it's going to repeat itself. And eventually you come to a conclusion, right? Uh, fire burns because we saw fire and it burned once. And then you put your hand in again, it burns you again. You put your hand in again, it burns you again. Experientially, you're like, okay, now there's a relationship between these actions. That's one type of ruling, one type of knowledge. Another type of knowledge is a ruling that comes from the Sharia, which is from Khabar Sadiq. comes from a true report. We have reason to believe that the Quran is from God, that it's trustworthy, and it tells us something, so we get a piece of knowledge from this thing. Second one. Third way is to acquire knowledge through pure intellect, which is to be to say like, okay, you have a father and you have a son, and usually, subhanAllah, when you do this stuff with people who are trained in the American system, they bring you some sort of like weird, exceptional thing that's not actually accurate. And they're like, no, that's not true. Like, just think properly for a second. You have a father and you have a son. Who's older? The father. This is pure intellect. You don't need like any other information. You don't need whatever. You ask people, can you have a square circle? They're like, yeah, you can have a square circle. No, you can't. Okay, it's, if it's a square, it's not a circle. If it's a circle, it's not a square. This, you know it automatically. Uh, can the part of something be bigger than the whole? No, the part of something cannot be bigger than the whole. I can't like take my arm off, la qadr Allah, and be like, my arm now all of a sudden becomes bigger than the rest of my body. It doesn't work that way. These are pure, pure intellect. And there's many other things can be understood this way. What we say in Muslim theology is always very simple, which is that when we use pure intellect, we're able to come to the conclusion that there is a creator. And when we come to the conclusion that there is a creator, we understand that that creator has power and he has will and he has knowledge. Subhanahu wa ta'ala, glorified and exalted is he. So that's why we said that fire burning is not a ruling, a piece of knowledge that we get from the mind, actually. It's not pure intellect. There's nothing about fire in and of itself that it has to burn. It's that Allah creates burning and association with the fire at every single moment that something touches the fire. And that's why Allah also, it's very reasonable for Allah to tell the fire in Sayyidina Ibrahim, he tells the fire, Kuni, Bardan wa Salam, to just be cool and peaceful for Ibrahim. And Ibrahim falls in the fire, and he has the best days of his life. I think he's just totally enjoying it. Um, that's, that's because 
the ruling on the fire burning is not hukum aqli. It doesn't have to be that way. It's hukum adi, something that by experience we judge it that way. Okay, so what is a miracle actually? A miracle is something that's khariqun lil adam. It breaks the norm. So there's a normal way that we see things happen. And the miracle breaks the norm. That's all it is. And in the case of prophets, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives this to prophets and as a, as a means of affirming their prophethood. And it's given to people afterwards as a gift. It's a karama. It's literally, it's a gift. It's Allah akrama had al-abd. We had a shaykh. Gave him this gift to honor them. And now they're able, they, something happened on their hands. So, uh, so when we come to the Prophet them, there are actually many, many miracles. SubhanAllah. One time, I don't know what I was doing. Must have been before streaming television and stuff. I was flipping through channels and I came to one of these like evangelical channels. I was like, check it out. So I'm watching it. And some reason they're talking about Prophet Muhammad. And they're trying to, they're trying to like throw shots at Islam. So they're like basically saying Jesus had miracles and Muhammad didn't have miracles. Right? And I'm like, wow, there's actually a lot of things. This whole chapter is on miracles of the Prophet. These are things that are well known in the Sunnah. They're not like at least many of them are well known in the Sunnah miracles. So this shouldn't be something that's surprising to us, actually. Um, and people, up to today, there are people in the world who miracles happen on their hands. We talked about this last week. We don't need to go into it too much. Um, the miracle is a breaking of the norm, right? Sometimes things happen to us in our lives that are shifts from the norm and maybe they're not as extreme, we don't realize it, but it's miraculous in a sense, okay? So, and a lot of the hadith, like a lot of the unseen, a lot of the matters of barakah, stuff like that are related to this. Like when the Prophet talks about how the believer, uh, the, the disbeliever eats with seven stomachs and the believer eats with one. Because when they say Bismillah, then the way that their body interacts with the food is different than the way that someone else interacts with the food. Or that the people, when they come together, enough if there's enough food for two people, it's enough food for four people. Uh, because they come together, there's a barakah in more hands, there's a blessing in more hands eating from the food. And they say bismillah, and they remember Allah, and so on and so forth. And I'm sure you've experienced it. Like sometimes you'll eat something, and you'll eat it, and it's just like you didn't eat. An hour passes, two hours passes, you feel like you didn't eat at all. And then another time, this, and it happens sometimes, I've noticed, it happens like you might go out and eat something. In an hour and a half, you're hungry again. And you make the same thing at home, and you're not hungry as fast. It's the same thing. Because there's a difference, actually. <laughs> Probably one of them had more oppression in it, less barakah in it, so on and so forth, than the one that you ate at home, probably. Or maybe you just forgot to say bismillah. Or maybe, or maybe, or maybe. Right? Um... Ahlam and anyone else, if we need more chairs, they're behind, they're in that hallway, which you have to walk around because that door is locked. So if you walk through this hallway all the way around the gym, or is it open? Then in that hallway, there's, there's more chairs there. If you need. 
Uh, okay, so the Prophet وسلم, has miracles. What is the first miracle that he opens the chapter with? He opens the chapter with the miracle saying that the trees walked to him. He called, he called the tree, وسلم, and the tree walked to him on its roots. Walked on its roots. On its trunk, you know, with no feet. It doesn't have feet, it's just cruising along. And as if it's writing lines of poetry and calligraphy into the ground as it's going. It's just a beautiful expression, right? When you go to uh, Medina, I'm trying to remember where it was. Someone might remember. When you go to Medina, there's a masjid called Masjid al-Shajara. Anyone remember? Anyone? I think it's close to where... Um, it's in... I teach things and then I forget them. It's in the series from the, that we did at the Mejlis on visiting the sacred spaces. It's in one of those lectures. But I think it's close to the Seba'a Masajid area, the seven masjids area. It's like part of the normal tour around Medina. There's a masjid there called Masjid Shajara because it marks the place where the Shajara incident, the tree incident happened with the Prophet so the, the, the place where it happened is known. Right? Not necessarily the tree itself, but the place where it happened is known that this is this is where the Prophet called the tree and so on. There's different uh, narrations about this, but I'll read you one of them. The point that the Shaykh al-Busiri is alluding to is that Qadi Iyad mentioned in the Shifa. The Shifa is a very famous book on uh, the rights and rank of Al-Mustafa The rights and rank of the Prophet Muhammad And uh, it's translated It's like a big green book It's even bigger than normal like The dimensions of it are bigger than a normal book Big green book translated uh, So he mentioned this in there From Ibn Umar uh, for anyone who's coming in now, if you would like, there's plenty of pizza. Please don't feel shy. Get the pizza. Say bismillah. Even though we have a lot. So if you didn't say bismillah and you ate more, that would benefit us. But it's not a good thing to do, so don't do it. All right. Shifa, he says, Ibn Umar radiallahu anhum narrated, we were with the emissary of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam on a journey. And a Bedouin came up to him. There's multiple narrations where this happened. So this might not be the one from Masjid al-Shajra, but it's one that happened also. We were with the Messenger of Allah and a Bedouin came up to him and he asked, Oh Bedouin, where are you going? And the Bedouin replied to my family. And he said, Do you want something good? The Bedouin inquired, And what might that be? He said, That you bear witness that there is no God but Allah who is alone and without partner. And that Muhammad is his servant and emissary, his messenger. The Bedouin asked, who will bear witness to the truthfulness of what you say? He's having a conversation with this person, right? So he says, if you think I should do that, then who's going to bear witness? Who's going to bear witness that what you say is true? So the Prophet said, this tree right here, call it to you and it will come. The tree will bear witness, call the tree and it will come. The Bedouin called out to the tree, and suddenly it advanced from the edge of the valley, cleaving the earth until it stood before him. And he asked it three times to bear witness, which it did. And then he returned to where it came. He returned to where it came. 
the tree came, the Bedouin was like, who is this? And he said, Muhammad Rasulullah. He asked him multiple times. And after multiple times, then the tree went back. And again, this happened um, also in that area in Medina. This is one of them. This is one miracle. Another miracle. Like the cloud that hovered over him wherever he went, shielding him from the intense oven of the midday heat. Now, this is a reference to uh, this incident that used to happen with the Prophet that there was a cloud that used to be seen sometimes when it's very hot, the cloud would just follow him and give him shade. And this was especially seen, especially seen even before the advent of the of his message, When he went on the trip to Syria with his family, and then the monk saw the monk saw that there's uh, this cloud that's going over the head of him. And he knew that this was one of the signs that this was the prophet that's coming. Um, this is technically not a marjizah because it's before the prophethood. But in any case, he mentions it here as something that was out of the norm that happened to the prophet, which again is that this cloud used to follow him. Um, in the commentary, he says, there are two reasons why the cloud shaded the prophet. The first is physical and the second is spiritual. The first reason is that the shading served as a precursor and herald of his prophethood and a proclamation of the divine care and honor he was to receive. I feel inclined to make a point here. It's a sign that, he, that his prophethood is coming. It's a sign of the divine care and honor he would receive. Is it not true that the Prophet had a really difficult life? He had a really difficult life. He buried all of his children except for one. He saw many of his friends killed in front of him. Nothing he can do about it. He was driven out of his home. He was hated upon by his people that he grew up with. He faced extreme poverty. He was tested with all kinds of tests and difficulties. So some people, and the reason why I'm saying this is because it's very important that we believe that Allah is not Santa Claus. We've said this before. I thought I was going to say something that was really highly academic. Allah is not Santa Claus. Allah is not Santa Claus. You don't just say, oh, Allah, I worshiped you. Why aren't you making everything in my life easy? Like, Allah, I'm giving you five prayers a day and 2.5% of my savings and $5 of charity every now and then. Allah, like, really, everything in my life should be easy, Allah. It's not the way it is. I mean, maybe Allah will make everything easy for the person, but maybe the person will go through immense difficulty. And the Prophet said, That the people who are most tested are the Prophets, and then those that come after them, and those that come after them in rank 
and the person is tested according to their the level of their deen, about the strength of their religion. It's not that like you see people that are really they're the most beloved people to Allah, and they go through immense difficulty. And you know, there's many wisdoms you can say for that, but I just felt like it's important to say this in light of the divine care and honor that he was going to receive. He got the most divine care and honor, and he went through a very difficult life. And the reality is that it's very much like one cannot be strong without difficulty. It's just the way it is. You can't be strong without difficulty. Like, you don't see someone who's really like, I'm going to become, a, 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 like, I want to compete as a bodybuilder. You're like, what are you going to do? You're like, I'm going to go to the gym every day and lay down on the bench and airlift. <laughs> not, not even a bar, not even the bar by itself with nothing. You're like, I'm just going to airlift. I'm going to imagine that there's weights there. And I'm going to say this and that. And I'm going to go every day. And like just wait three months, you're gonna see what happens. Nothing's gonna happen. They want to get stronger every day, they're gonna to have to put more. Not every day, because that probably hurt them, but every so often they're gonna to have to put more. They're gonna to get to a point where that more becomes easy and they're gonna to have to put more. They're gonna to get to a point where that more becomes easy and they're gonna to have to put more. And this is gonna be and weight training is there's limits on it, obviously, because the body has a limit. The soul doesn't have limits the way the body has limits. But this is gonna be their entire life. Things are going to, they're going to go through some difficulty. They're going to pass the trial. Then you're going to get any wrong. But there's, there's a, it doesn't mean that every moment of their life is trial. Okay. Like person's not going to the gym every single, for every hour of the day, but there's going to be difficulties that they face that make them overall stronger. And the rest of the things in their life are going to be more beautiful. You can be able to appreciate them more, to be able to, experience them in a deeper way and then they might have some more trials and so on and so forth it doesn't mean the point of this is to say that it doesn't mean that you're not in the care of Allah we look back on the things that we go through in life we realize like I wouldn't have been able to that's why age is important right you look at it well this thing that I'm going through now I wouldn't have been able to handle it if I didn't go through that other thing before but now there's an insight to it. You see a lot of great sheikhs, like you, ask, you really start talking to them about their lives and they're like, subhanAllah. Many of them have even seen like very intimately false sheikhs. Like, they've been through that. So they really understand like what is the difficulty here. You know? Anyways, the second reason, two reasons for the shady. First is to show this song. The second is the spiritual reason is that the shading signaled that whoever of his nation follows him and seeks his shade will attain complete security and everlasting honor. It's a matter of everlasting honor, complete security, is a matter of the hereafter. Right? But whoever from his ummah, sallallahu the cloud that Allah made to follow him in all these different space, times to protect him from the sun, is a sign to his followers that he's like that for us, sallallahu alayhi wa He's the cloud that protects us from difficulty. He's the, he's the means by which we enter into everlasting abode of, of mercy with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
He also says, taking the outward reality into consideration, the shading of the Prophet served as an additional protection and safeguard and a reflection of the providential care for his status and an admonition to others that his sanctity must be upheld, that he must be revered, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Right? Oh man, I'm going to get off on a tangent right now that might get me in hot water. And it's still important, I believe. <laughs> if the cloud is giving shade to the Prophet this is the level that the cloud, the inanimate object, the level of reverence that the inanimate object, inanimate, inanimate object has for the Prophet then what about the people of the Prophet what kind of reverence are they supposed to have for the Prophet the cloud came to protect him from the sun And sometimes we're like, oh, it's just a sunnah. Oh, it's just this. Why do I have to sit on the ground? You know, like, why do you sit on the ground? I already told you, my body hurts when I sit on the ground. Do you know why I like to sit on the ground? Because the Prophet sat on the ground. It's not so complicated. He sat on the ground. I like to sit on the ground. He sat and he ate food on the ground. He didn't eat at a table. Can you eat at a table? Totally permissible to eat at a table, no problem. The Prophet sat on the ground and ate. How many people have had regular experiences sitting on the ground around, uh, around food with many people? Many people have done that. You're raised like that. Is it the same as when you sit at a table and eat and everyone has their own little plate and their own everything? Is it the same? It's not the same. It's not the same. Try it. It's not the same. Not to, we don't do it in my house. I'm not like saying that, you know, we're the greatest examples or whatever. So children are going to come. They're going to knock over your stuff. We don't have other, like, there's obviously ways to deal with that. But um, it's different. When you sit and you eat, it's different. Why? And then what did the Prophet say? He likes to sit like this. He likes to eat like this. Why? He says, because I'm a servant, I like to sit the way that a servant sits. I'm a slave. Abd. I like to sit the way that a slave sits. They don't sit on big chairs and big tables and all these kind of things. They just sit on the ground. Sit on the ground. And actually, there's a narration on this, by the way, that when you have a big feast, especially a wedding, wedding feast, and only the rich people are invited, there's no blessing in it. It's very scary, by the way. So traditional big weddings, they have huge weddings. Everyone's invited. Like you're in the village, maybe you have a big wedding. Everyone's invited. Rich people are invited, poor people are invited. Everyone's going to come sit together and eat together. Not like only the people that can afford valet parking get to eat here. Right? It's a very different reality. So the Prophet them used to do these things. The cloud used to shade him. I don't know if I should go on the Sometimes you say things, it's like, Uh, I feel like it needs to get said, but it's going to be um, sometimes we have stuff like we when it comes to representation it's a question of representation you know? 
Like we have to have these movies and these films and stuff that just you know, show these diverse characters and really show who Muslims are and so on and so forth. I mean, Malaysia, I mean, first of all, we live in a society where everyone does whatever they want. So like if you have a Muslim on screen who commits zina and like smokes and does all these kind of things, that's what everyone does. They're like, no, we got representation. We got representation of what? Like, alhamdulillah, we don't have an issue. We have these problems in our community. I'm not saying that we don't have them. I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about them. I'm not saying any of them. I'm just saying like, where's the Izzah? Like, like this is Islam. This is the way of the Prophet The cloud shaded him from the sun. And we want to go out in front of people like, no, we're just like you. We're just like you. Go ahead, go ahead, it's fine. We're nothing, we're just like you. No, we're not just like you. We're not actually just like you. If I believed I was just like you, I wouldn't be a Muslim. Like, why would I say that in the love if I believed I was just like you? I'm just like you in the sense that we eat food and everyone does what happens after they eat food and we get sick and we have health and we have jobs. And we have, yeah, we're just like you like that. But we're not just like you in the sense that we don't have any guidance. We're not just like you in the sense that like we don't have a prophet what is this? This is craziness. Allah give us izzah. What is this stuff? Like, there should be, like, I remember one sister, subhanAllah. It's so amazing. Like, there's a lot of things about Islam, maybe especially at that time. Maybe she wasn't practicing them in her life. But when it came to Islam, she's like a lion. Like, no, nobody's going to say anything about Islam. Nobody's going to say anything about the Muslims. And she'll be, like, ready to defend Islam and the Muslims, even if she herself is not in a place where she's doing some of those things. But, like, no, you're not going to talk this way about Islam. You're not going to do that with the Muslims. This is like, it's a matter of honor sometimes also. And, again, we have all kinds of problems. I'm not, that's not the point. The point is, like, do you have honor or not? Is this the Prophet Is he khayru Is he the one that the, the tree came walking to him? The cloud got between him and the sun. And we're going to be like, we need representation of people who show that they're Muslim, but completely flaunt the way of the Prophet Just completely throw it out the window. And then what? I hope the point is clear. I'm not hating on anyone. I'm not judging anyone. It's not the point. Like, alhamdulillah, we have open office hours every single week. We see all kinds of things. My wife, myself, Chaplain Sundos, Ustad Fuad, like we see everything. Just, yeah, I won't even give you details, but like everything you can imagine, we've probably heard. And someone will bring it and they talk about it in office hours and you say, alhamdulillah. Inshallah, things will be okay. And like you work with them and you try to support them and you give them whatever resources you can. There's no issue, no judgment, nothing. But that's a, on a specific case. As a general principle, that the one who honors the signs of Allah, the symbols of Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala, that's from taqwa. 
It's from Taqwa. They're like, no, this is Salah. For example, you know all these YouTube videos people make making fun of Salah? Do you know how dangerous this is actually? Like from the early ulama, there's people they say to do istihza, bi sha'ir or bi sha'ir al-din is kufr. Like to, to ridicule a symbol of the religion is an act of disbelief. I'm not saying like don't don't go and make takfir on the people that make salat videos making fun of salat and stuff or joking about salat or whatever. That's not my point. My point is like this is salat. Like we didn't know how to worship Allah. Allah gave us revelation. He gave us a prophet. We didn't know how to worship him. Yeah, there's funny things that happen and stuff, but not the salat itself. Maybe the musalli, <laughs> fine, but not the salat itself. All right, enough of that. أقسمت بالقمري المنشقي إن له من قلبه نسبة مبرورة قسمي. I swear by the Lord of the moon that was split in two. A true oath. It has truly a connection with his heart. So now the author is swearing by the moon that was split in two. And uh, that, of course, is related. Uh, he's swearing about things. It's going to come later. But he's swearing about the, the moon that was split. It's one of the miracles of the Prophet. Time is coming near. The end of time is coming near. And the moon was split. And the moon was split. So this is one of the miracles of the Prophet Sometimes it's narrated in Bukhari from Ibn Mas'ud The moon split in two during the time of Allah's Messenger. One part was behind the mountain and the other part was on this side of the mountain. And the Prophet said, bear witness. In another narration it says, and then I saw the mountain above, and then I saw the mountain above the two pieces of the moon. The disbelievers of Quraysh scoffed. Ibn Abi Kepsha, they're referring to the Prophet has bewitched you. One of them said, though Muhammad may have bewitched us, his sorcerer, his sorcery cannot encompass the entire world. Ask those who come to you from other lands whether they saw this. Later, when some travelers arrived and were asked about it, they said that they too had witnessed it. So the moon was split. The disbelievers were like, oh, this is just fake. But people who come from another place, they will have seen it too. If it happened, they will have seen it too. Ask them when they come. People came from other places, they asked them when they came. And they also saw it. Ennis related the Meccans had asked the Messenger of Allah to show them a sign. And so he showed them the moon splitting into two pieces so far apart that they could see Hira between the two pieces, the mountain of Hira, the cave of Hira and the mountain. The two pieces of the moon went split apart. And he says he's swearing by the splitting of the moon, which has a relation to the splitting of the Prophet's chest, his heart, which is, you know, in many narrations, happened to the Prophet a number of times in his life. At least it happened uh, when he was very young, under the care of Hanima Saadiyya, and it's also narrated that it happened during uh, the Isra Mi'raj. And it's narrated from other places as well, but splitting of the moon, the author uh, links between the splitting of the moon and the splitting of the chest. Both of them are very 
miraculous things for the prophet Sallam's heart was split open and was uh, his chest was split open his heart was taken by the angels and he was clean and by the goodness and nobility contained in the cave while the disbelievers every glance was blind to him Uh, Al-Busiri in his other poem, the Hamziyah, he says he was hidden from their view despite his nearness. The most apparent things are often hidden. So he goes into a long thing about the Hijra here. The Hijra is generally well known, uh, at least in you know, general. The Prophet then leaves Mecca and he goes on this journey to Medina. And along the journey, they're being followed and they go to the cave. And Sayyidina Abu Bakr radiallahu anhi takes care of the cave of the Prophet and he checks the holes and he gets, you know, puts his, rips his clothes and puts it into the holes to protect the Prophet from any of the insects or animals that might be in the cave. And then the Prophet rests on Sayyidina Abu Bakr's lap and, you know, it said that, for example, like even he was stung. Abu Bakr was stung by like a scorpion or something. And it was so painful, but he didn't move. Because the Prophet was resting. But the tear came down and landed on the Prophet. He realized what had happened. And there's narrations around it. What he's referring to here is this incident of the, the dove that made its nest right outside the cave, in the mouth of the cave, and the, the spider that wove its web across the opening of the cave. And how these people who were following them, then uh, when they got there, they're literally right there in front of them. And Sayyidina Abu Bakr told him, like, they're so close that if they just look down, they would see us. And the Prophet them told him, don't worry, uh, don't worry, Allah is with us. It'll be fine. And they didn't see them. Because they saw the dove's nest and they saw the, the spider. And they said, this, no one could be in there because these things are there. Um, I think it's in the next line. Yeah, it's coming. So maybe I shouldn't say too much. There are people in the story of the Hijra who had amazing roles. Obviously, Abu Bakr had a role that uh, he went with the Prophet Sayyidina Ali had an amazing role that he was stayed in the bed of the Prophet when he escaped from his home. So when everyone came to descend and kill the person in the bed, it was Sayyidina Ali. Uh, and the family of Abu Bakr, especially Sayyidah Asma, is a very interesting figure, by the way. Sayyidah Asma was a very strong woman. I mean, she's like, and then you see later too, not just now, but later with her son, Abdullah So, for example, Asma said, when Abu Bakr and the Messenger of Allah left, a group of Quraysh, including Abu Jahan, came to our home and stood at the door. I came out to them and they asked, where is your father, O daughter of Abu Bakr? 
I replied, I do not know. Whereupon Abu Jahl, who was a vile and dissolute man, raised his hand and struck me upon my face so violently that my earrings flew. He hit her that hard. And she used to take them food in the cave. And she used to drag her clothes so that the um, her trail would be covered. She'd take them the food. Anyways, the Hijra is a long topic. Next verse it says, Truthfulness, a sit, is a reference to the Prophet. He calls the Prophet a sit. And then Abu Bakr, of course, is a siddiq. So a sitq fil ghari wa siddiq lam yarima. Sidq is there, the Prophet and a siddiq Abu Bakr are in the cave. And they wavered not while they said, No one who breathes is in the cave. The people who came, they're like, it's No one who's breathing could be in the cave with all this stuff that's protecting him. They suppose that a dove would never perch or a spider would spin its web for the best of creation. What did they think? <laughs> they, thought a, they thought like a, a dove wouldn't come and make its nest to protect the Prophet and, an, and, a, and, a, and a spider wouldn't come and weave its web to protect the best of creation. They're all secondary. The best of creations, the Prophet Everyone's in the service of the Prophet They're not going to come to serve him. They thought that wouldn't happen. Uh, yeah, we do. Don't we? I'm pretty sure we do. Did we go? I can't remember. Did we go? Remember when we looked from a distance? Was that that cave? Huh? Yeah. They pointed out when you go. Yeah. From a distance, they, they tell you this is here. Nobody goes because it's like hard to get there. <laughs> Even more than Hira. Anyone climbed Hira? Climbed the, the to the cave where the where the revelation started. You did it? It's good to do. Don't worry about the bid'ah police. If you go, just climb to the cave of Al-Hira and go. It's a... Uh, I mean, what are you there for? You're there to trace the footsteps of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. I'm just there to... I want, I want to feel that. Like you want to go, you want to, and this is why the history is so important. You want to feel like this is where they walked. This is where the Prophet Sallallahu walked. This is where, not only the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Khadija herself used to come sometimes and bring him food. She walked this path too, radiallahu anha, and other people and so on. So on. You, want to walk, you want to walk. It's hard, right? It's hard if you're not used to it. And then you see like, like the mountain people from these different countries, they just have their chapels on. <laughs> going up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. <laughs> huh? Yeah, it's paved too. It's like semi-paved at least. And you're walking and it's like really hard. And then the mountain people, mashallah, they're just wearing their sandals up and down, up and down. I don't even know. Like, maybe like 45 minutes? I think my friend went with me. 
for Hirat? It's long. I don't think it's 10 miles, but it's long. I didn't go last time because we had the kids with us and stuff. Two or three miles? Yeah, it's long. It, it takes some time. And it's tiring and you're going and alhamdulillah, it's a good experience. Sometimes the monkeys are up there. Wiqayatullahi agnat an muda'afatin min al-duru'i an alin min al-utuhi. It's a beautiful line. It builds up to this line. This and this and this. They didn't think this and they didn't think that and so on in the cave. Their protection by Allah absolved them of need for additional armor or for lofty fortresses. The protection of Allah means they didn't need all these fortresses, they didn't need all these shields, they didn't need any of these things. Allah put the safety there, there's the safety there. SubhanAllah. Sometimes, you know, a couple of times I've met families that somehow managed to raise either all or a large percentage of their children as like serious Muslims in America, as like new immigrants and stuff like that with limited resources and things. And I'm always amazed. I'm like, how did you do this? You know, like, how, how did it happen? And the couple of people that I've asked, they've given always the same answer. Their answer was always, I didn't do anything. Allah did everything. And of course, when you talk to them, they did a lot, right? <laughs> like they put their kids in this and they drove there and they spent this money and they, they did everything they could, whatever their, whatever their means were. People are very means. Not everyone was like super wealthy or something, but whatever means they had, they did whatever they could. When you ask them, I didn't do anything. Only Allah did it. Only Allah protected my children. It was just Qiyam al The only thing protected my children praying in the night. Praying in the night is protecting my children. The protection of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala more than all of these things. One Shaykh we met him in Egypt. It was, funny, it was a funny experience. His name was Jamal, actually. Really intimidating. SubhanAllah. Him and his wife used to write books together. I don't even know if he's still alive. He was very old. And um, we come and we sit down. As soon as we sit down, he's like, put some drink or something, you know? And he's like, Tafil al Quran. First, do you memorize from the Quran? We're like, yeah. It's like, Tabi Quran. I told the brother I'm with him, like, Tafil. You go first, you know? <laughs> so he reads and he's like, not bad. How much do you memorize? He's like, not bad. It's okay. It's not too much. But it's not too little either. Like, and he gave good advice. He's like, if you leave Egypt and the only thing you did was memorize the Quran, that would be a victory. Of course, we didn't listen to him because we're foolish Americans. I think we know better all the time. And uh, the other brother did. He memorized the Quran, but me, I'm happy. So he didn't memorize. And then he says, Sunday in the Mishnah, like, yeah, sometimes Sheikh, you know, sometimes you don't. He's like, you should pray Fajr in the Masjid. Yeah. He says, uh, uh, do you fast Monday and Thursday? But like, sometimes he's like, what are you doing? <laughs> you're just here as students, right? Like, you don't have anything else. You should be doing Ibadah too. And people, sometimes students get into this different, very materialistic way. 
and uh, then the adhan goes off for the salat, whatever salat it was, down the stairs, down the street, super fast. He's like old, all gray and everything, down the street. They didn't have him leave the salat and come back. Whatever we're talking. Later on, we, we knew his son. And uh, one of the things we heard from his son was that when he got his driver's license, sometimes he would want, this is the point, sometimes he would want to borrow the car, right? So he asked his dad, you know, can I borrow the car and go out, whatever. It's, it makes a lot of sense, especially in Egypt, by the way. <laughs> I'm about to say it makes even more sense in Egypt. So he's like, did you uh, say, okay, you want to borrow the car? He said, yeah. He said, did you salat al-fajr fi This is his question. Did you pray fajr in jama'ah, in congregation? If he says yes, he'll give him the keys. If he says no, no keys for you. Why? Because the Prophet said that whoever prays Fajr in congregation, then that person is in the protection of Allah. This is a practical education from the father to the son, right? Practical education. Keys, no keys. And if anyone who's driven in Egypt understands the importance of, is this person or not? <laughs> like you really need to be in the protection of Allah. If you're going to take the keys, you're going to drive this car. But of course, it here is the same, right? Like, uh, it's like we talked about last week. We don't be overly f- afraid about the world, but we, we do need to put on our armor. So what is the, the dad teaching the son? The dad's teaching the son, put on your spiritual armor, you can drive the car. Maybe you forgot you weren't able to pray Fajr and Jemaah. At least do something else. Make the dhikr that we say, make something so that you're recognizing. Like I was, even, I was thinking the other day when I was driving, like, you know, Allah protect us and our families and our loved ones and everything else, but like a car is really dangerous, right? I mean, like we realize it when we really think about it, but if you really sit and think about it, a car is extremely dangerous. Like it, cars really hurt people. Of course, it's the people and everything else, but like the point is, it's, it's not like a, I mean, we live in Southern California, Allah protect us and our loved ones. Like if you commute to work every day when you commute, you see some accident. It's like almost every single day you'll see an accident. But every single day you pass by the accident, you won't think anything. This is a dua like we said last time. Alhamdulillah. The dua of the Prophet when you see someone who's afflicted by something else. Say Alhamdulillah that Allah protected me from this, from what he afflicted you with, and he gave me blessings over many of his creation. It's very, but the protection of Allah, the point here was the protection of Allah. The protection of Allah is what gives that. There's a story here. It's a heavy duty story. I always waver between do you share these stories? Do you not? But I think that it's good to share them. Just to... The world is more interesting than we think it is. And everything becomes like really materialistic. Really, it makes everything boring. That's why we like these... It's like, that's why we like the superhero movies and stuff. Because they're more interesting, you know? But the world is actually more interesting than we realize it is. There's a story of Abu Hamza and Furasani. 
He took a covenant with Allah that he would not entrust his destiny to any of creation or ask a human being for any of his needs and that he would sever all intermediaries between him and his Lord. This existed, okay? Um, even some uh, some of the people that when they took bay'ah from the Prophet them, when they took their covenant with the Prophet them, some of the narrations of this include for some of them that you don't ask anyone for help for anything even if it's that your camel rain falls like you're on your animal your rain falls, you don't ask someone to pick it up for you you do everything yourself you don't ask anyone for anything this is a high, not everyone had that, just to be clear. Not everyone had that, and not everyone should be doing what Abu Hamza and Khulasani did, but to understand the story. So he made this he made this covenant with Allah. I'm not going to ask anyone for anything. One day as he was walking, his foot slipped and he fell into a well. It occurred to him at that moment that he should call out to a passerby and ask for help and rescue from certain death. But he remembered the covenant he had taken with his Lord, so he refrained. He then said, I will not violate the covenant I have taken with my Lord. I am surely under his care, and he sees me and knows my condition. His certitude was remarkable, and he remained inside the well, waiting for relief, when a group of people passed by, and one of them said to his companions, come over here and let us cover the opening to this well so no one falls in. <laughs> Someone could fall in here. He's inside, can't say anything. They came together to move something over the cover of the well, and Abu Hamza said to himself, it looks as though this will be the end of me. And it occurred to him that he should break the oath he had taken with Allah. And yet Allah had strengthened his certitude and faith, and he kept silent. Uh, as he saw them covering the opening of the well. Okay, he, saw them, he saw them covering the opening, he stayed silent. After they covered it and they went away, Meanwhile, Abu Hamza had resigned, resigned his faith to Allah's divine preordainment and knowledge. Then suddenly he heard growling outside of the well, and the cover over the well was removed. When he looked up, Abu Hamza, what does Hamza mean by the way? Lion. He's Abu Hamza, okay? Saw that it was a lion. When he looked up, Abu Hamza saw that it was a lion. The lion then lowered its tail inside of the well, and Abu Hamza grabbed hold of it and pulled himself out, after which the lion growled and went away. After this, a voice called out to Abu Hamza. Uh, by the way, in traditional Arabic, the voice called out, that's a hatif. When you read old Arabic books, and it says, it says like, modern Arabic hatif is a telephone. <laughs> right? You can see the connection. Like you pick up this phone and all of a sudden a voice comes. But in these old books, it's like literally they heard a voice. So a voice called out to Abu Hamza saying, Oh Abu Hamza, the real wonder is that we have rescued you, rescued you from one mortal danger by another mortal danger. And you came out. Look at the certitude of this master. This important concluding remark by the Shaykh. He exposed himself to imminent death, yet he refused to violate the oath that was between him and his Lord. May Allah allow us to benefit from his blessings and may he bestow upon us what he bestowed upon him. If you ask, what's interesting is, you know, sometimes he does a lot of that. If you know, there was sometime a few months ago, I made a comment on this. In this book, he does a lot of, if you, if you see this and you think this, if you ask this, then this. 
it's a really important uh, pedagogical technique. So if someone was like to really carefully read this text, you'll gain an ability to see how to think about things. Because he'll do that a lot. Like there'll be an issue, you'll read it and you'll be like, hmm, uh, I wonder about this. And then right after that, he'll say, if you were to ask that thing, this is the answer to that. It's really, a, it's really nice. He says, if you ask, is it, is it permissible for someone to do as he did? The answer is no. It is not allowed unless someone has certitude like that of Abu Hamza. In, other, in any other situation, this would be considered suicide. So if you have a level of certitude like Abu Hamza, then do without a care, for Allah will deliver you and provide a way out for you. It's very similar to like when people read the stories about Sayyidina Abu Bakr, Sayyidina Abu Bakr gave all of his wealth, everything. When the Prophet asked for charity, Sayyidina Abu Bakr gave all of his wealth. He's like, what do you leave for your children? He's like, I leave them Allah and his messenger. Should I, should, should I be doing that? If you have the certitude of Abu Bakr, you can do that. Even Sayyidina Omar gave half his wealth. It was like a big deal. He came and gave half his wealth, and he was like, I'm going to beat Abu Bakr today. <laughs> Abu Bakr comes, he's like, what are you giving Abu Bakr? He's like, I'm giving everything. And Omar's like, what am I supposed to do with this guy? How can I beat him? I can't beat him. And good. So if you have the iman of Abu Hamza, then go ahead. Otherwise, it's suicide. Like, literally, it's suicide. Don't do it. Don't be like, you know, I prayed five times today. I think I'm going to do this. It's not... Uh, don't do that. Okay, I'm just going to read the last line. We're not going to talk about it today. We'll talk about it next time. I need some conversation. Never when fate oppressed me have I sought refuge in him, meaning the Prophet, but that I found sanctuary with him and was oppressed no more. Okay, so this is the question of Tawassul, the question of Tawassul became Tawassul bin Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Like many things in our community, this is one of those issues that was removed from being subjected to actual brain. Okay. This is very interesting in our community. Like we have things where like an issue will come up in divorce, right? And the Shaykh, mashallah, will know every opinion the four madhabs and the opinions the madhabs didn't have. And then this person outside of the madhab and so and so and so and so, all the opinions. And then like they get asked about making dhikr in congregation and all of a sudden there's only one opinion. Where is the academic consistency here? Okay. Same thing with Tawassul. Tawassul bin Nabi, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. You would talk to people about it, Tawassul bin Nabi, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And you would make, you would come to the conclusion that like, if I do this, I'm not even a Muslim anymore. And then you go and you read the actual books of fiqh and you're like, uh, wait a second, like, the madhabs were okay with this? Like everyone was, a lot of people were okay with this? Not like, like for example, you, oftentimes the Hanbalis are, Tawassul bin Nabi, just, you don't know what I'm saying, something like that. It's when you say, oh Allah, I ask you by the rank of the Prophet or I ask you by, um, by the Prophet whatever. People are like, why are you asking? Why don't you just ask directly? This is shirk. 
And it's not should be asking by the rank of the Prophet, not by like, not asking him to do it, asking by his rank. And like you would think that the, with the positions you hear in the community and stuff, you would think that the Hanbalis maybe are more strict. In the Hanbali madhab, it's mustahab. To make dua, tawassulan bin Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And I heard this like from the mouth of a really strict Hanbali shaykh, not like some random person. Um, so, you know, anyways, that's a conversation for next week. We're not going to spend that much time in it, but it's just. When we want to know the halal and haram on something, the wrong question is, this is going to be really surprising maybe for some people. The wrong question is, what did the Quran and Sunnah say about this? It's the wrong question. Because if you're going to ask that question, you're assuming that you know how to deal with the Quran and the Sunnah in the first place. Okay? It's like the story of the Shaykh who was giving a lecture and he quoted a hadith, and the person in the audience was like, what's the, what's the chain of narration on this hadith? How do we know that it's authentic? And he was like, oh, if I give you the chain of narration, you can, you're going to tell me if it's authentic? He's like, yes, what's the chain of narration? And he's like, it's from so-and-so, from so-and-so, from so-and-so, from so-and-so, from the Prophet He's like, okay, that's fine. He's like, I just read you the names on a wedding invitation. Like it's not, I just read you the names of the wedding invitation. You don't even know what you're saying. Like, what, what are you doing? You don't know. Like, if, if the person gives you the chain of narration, you're going to know the chain of narration. I'm going to know, like, I don't know. Like, this person read from this person, this person. This, you don't know what it is. You give you the verse from the Quran. You're going to even be able to tell if the, it's an actual verse from the Quran. Well, tell me the verse from the Quran. You want me to tell you in English? Not a verse from the Quran if I tell you in English, right? So, do you want me to tell you in English? Is the verse from the Quran? Or like, what do you want exactly? It's the wrong question. Uh, people don't like that. They don't like to hear that. But it's the wrong question. The right question is, who said what? Like, who from our schools of interpretation, from our imams? doesn't mean you have to stop there. Maybe you want to dig further. Maybe after you know what the opinions are and so on, you're like, hmm, I don't know. Maybe there's more to it. I want to know more. You dig more. It's fine. But from the beginning, to be like, the Prophet never did that. I follow the Quran and Sunnah. I don't follow Abu Hanifa. What's Abu Hanifa following? What is a Shafi'i following? What are all these people following? They're just following like whatever? How would they be there? They're following the Quran and the Sunnah. So, anyways, these are the 10 Shafu'at's Shafu'at class. Talk about it more. But these are really, it's a musibah. It's a it's a trial. It's a test for the for the community of the Prophet. So I want to know. Like someone's gonna say, Oh, this is an issue of you know, you're a disbeliever if you do this or whatever. Or it's a matter of shirk. Okay, then just tell me like who said what. I'll give you another example, a very common one in our community. This is the one that made me jaded. Because when I was first learning Islam, everything was haram. Everything. Like I'm surprised I'm still alive because it's like, can you even breathe? Breathing's haram. So the one issue that was like a big issue in our community, alhamdulillah, from those days, honestly, from the 90s and the early 2000s, alhamdulillah, that Allah delivered us from that era of Islam in America. 
I mean, subhanAllah. The big one in our time was, can you read Quran for someone when they die? And this was a question of like, oh man, is a big issue. You know, like, you cannot read Quran for someone when they die. And if you read Quran for them, this is a blameworthy innovation. Never happened in the time of the Prophet The companions never did it. That's not an evidence, by the way. Just to be clear, like from Islamic legal theory, that's not an evidence. The tark, there's no, it doesn't indicate anything. Absence of action doesn't indicate anything. So it says, they, you know, never happened, this and this. Uh, yeah, Sheikh, you know, my uncle died. All my relatives want to get together. I'm 17. And all of my relatives are 50 and 55. And they want to read Quran. And, you know, what should I do, Sheikh? Uh, you should fight it because this is an innovation and against the sunnah of the prophets and you can't let them get away with it. People literally have huge problems with their families over this kind of thing, right? So I'm like, this is what I was told. Miskeen person growing up in the community, trying to learn my religion, looking to the people of knowledge, quote unquote. And this is what I was told. So, you know, alhamdulillah, eventually Allah gave us the ability to read the Arabic language, picked up the most simple book in Islamic law. It's like simple, super simple, rudimentary, encyclopedic work in Islamic law. Look up the question, open the book, read the answer. I'm like, wait a second. Like, you're going to tell me the Hanafis had no problem with it. The Shafi'is had no problem with it. The Malikis in the later period had no problem with it. And the Hanbalis had no problem with it. And the four medhebs, none of them had an issue with it. And I'm supposed to fight my elders and my family over this? I mean, Allah protect us. On the Day of Judgment, you're mas'ul. You are really responsible on the Day of Judgment for all of those problems. On an issue that didn't even need to exist in the first place. Four medhebs. Not one or like two or three. Four, all four agree that it's permissible. You don't want to do it? Fine, don't do it. It's not the point. The point is not do it or don't do it. The point is like, do I have to go to war with my family over something? Like, so, so what happened? What happened is you ask someone the question and they're like, no, it's not in the Quran and Sunnah, it's against the Sunnah. Like, what did the ulama say about it? They can't even tell you. Like, really? And I heard a sheikh recently get on the, get on the podium and say, in the khutbah, to hundreds, if not thousands of people. Some people ask if they can read the Quran for someone who's passed away. And this question, Wallahi, is a disgrace to the Quran. And I'm giving you the quote. This question, Wallahi, is a disgrace to the Quran. And I almost like, oh my God. Like, Alhamdulillah, that we didn't have Jum'ah for a year. So I'm not required to attend and listen to this nonsense. I mean, really, subhanAllah. Allah forgive us. I'm not trying to make an issue out of this, but I mean, like, this is one issue. There's many issues like this. People teach us as if there's no difference of opinion. And it's full of difference of opinion. I'm not talking about difference of opinion of, like, some liberal guy who just made up whatever he wants. I'm talking about difference of opinion amongst the greatest people who ever existed in the history of Islam. Right? So... Allah protect us. Uh, there's a question online. And if you guys have any questions, I know something. All right, I'm here. I have my question. 
Um, so um, keep in mind, this question is kind of more in the context of like ex-Muslim circles. And I just try to, I'm just trying to figure out how to address it when it comes up. But the part that um, you're saying about how like the worst question is to ask like, you know, um, or the wrong question is like, well, what does um, Quran and Sunnah say about it, right? Um, mm -hmm. And where you were going with that. Yes. Okay. Are you still there? Hello. Did I miss the question? I'm not saying, just to be clear, I'm not saying you can't ask about evidence. I'm just saying that that's not. All right, I'm here. I'm here. Sorry. Go ahead. Okay, so as I was saying, like, um, you know, if the, if the Quran was meant to be accepted by all those who believe, and if it was meant to be um, something easy to believe in, then like, why, uh, why do we need to depend on so many experts and everything um, to uh, accept its message and understand it? I don't know if I'm trying to, if, if I'm clear in this question, basically, mm -hmm the kind of response I hear is that like, well, if the message was so clear and everything and meant to be accepted, why do we need a third party? Sure, because these things are not the core of the message. These are just issues like, like some of the scholars said that the amount of verses in the Quran that relate to rulings are 500. There's over 6,000 verses in the Quran. There's all kinds of things we can understand from the Quran. We don't need like a whole lot of uh, analysis. But when it comes particularly to like, you can do this, you cannot do that. Those are things that need specialization. And, um, but that's not the generality of the message. The generality of the message are not things that we need specialization for. Like even for us as regular Muslims, the stuff that we deal with every day is not stuff that we need specialization for. Like I don't need specialization to read verses that talk about how great Allah is or to see like, there's a reward in the hereafter for doing good and there's punishment for doing wrong and a person should be generous and a person should be grateful. And so these don't need like expert analysis. And those are the core of the message and they're the core of what we do on a daily basis. Um, so that would be how I came to think about that. All right, thank you, Salam. Thank you so much. Anyone here have anything? Yes, no. Go on once. Go on twice. Grateful for this beautiful time of day. Grateful for the opportunity to come together. Alhamdulillah. May Allah continue his blessings upon us and um, protect us and our loved ones and guide us and our loved ones and help us to deal with all the difficulties that we face. May Allah alleviate the difficulties of everyone who is here and their loved ones and uh, fulfill the needs of everyone who is here and their loved ones and those who intended to come. May Allah make us from those who worship him and seek him and remember him. May Allah make us a community of people who seek his pleasure and his favor. May Allah forgive us of our sins and our shortcomings. Thank you.
اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا علما وزدنا صالحا اللهم تقبل منا وعفو عنا فاتنا في الدنيا حسنة وفي الآخرة حسنة وقنا عذاب النار وصلى الله وسلم على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم الحمد لله رب العالمين